Let me welcome you to week number six, week number six of 10 weeks this summer, that you are aware that we are thinking together about the fact of the sure return of Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus has promised that he is going to return to the earth one day. We're studying this reality of his return as we're looking into 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians where Paul talks a lot about the fact that Jesus is coming again. And if you've been here for the last six weeks, you know that really our emphasis in these weeks is not simply the fact that he's coming again. I mean to say we're not saying Jesus is coming rah-rah, but our emphasis is on the fact that we need to be living in very uh, specific and intentional ways unto that coming. So more than Jesus is coming rah-rah, it is Jesus is coming, Lord, help me to be getting ready for him to come. In the waiting, while I'm waiting for him to return, how should my life be being transformed? Over the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the signs of his imminent appearing. We haven't talked a lot about the signs of the times, but some of those signs that we see happening in our day, which align with scripture, we've talked about. We've talked about the trials and the troubles that are coming to this world during the period of tribulation that the Bible speaks so clearly about and that Jesus himself talked so plainly about a time of trouble which Jesus said would be a time like the world has never seen before and will never see again, the tribulation period. And we've talked about the hope of the rapture of the church, the fact that Jesus will, before the tribulation begins to unfold, that Jesus will carry his church home to heaven. In fact, I've explained to you a couple of reasons why we believe that the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. There's a lot more reasons that we haven't had time to talk about, very biblical reasons, but we've talked about a couple of them. I might just remind you of one that I haven't mentioned, but we've read it in 1 Thessalonians. Let me show it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. Here you have a definite word about the hope of the pre-tribulation rapture. He says in chapter 1 verse 10, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who has delivered us from the wrath of to come, a very definite promise that this wrath, this time of wrath on the earth that uh, God will bring upon the earth and that the Bible clearly speaks about, he has rescued us or will rescue us or deliver us from that. Now, Paul talks about this fact of Jesus' return multiple times. And in one place, Paul writes to Titus. And in Titus chapter 2, verse number 13, he uses a two-word phrase To describe this return of Jesus, I want to show it to you. He says, looking for that blessed hope uh, and the glorious appearing of of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul calls the fact that Jesus will come to deliver us from this world, he'll come to take us home, he calls it our blessed hope. That this hope of his return uh, brings joy to us and assurance to us that he will take us from this world to heaven. But I want you to notice this verse in Titus chapter 2, how it comes into into clear view when you consider it in its context. So look at it with its preceding verse, verse 12, and read it this way. Teaching us, Paul writes, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, 
righteously and godly in this present world as we look for uh, his, uh, that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So do you see? It's not Jesus is coming rah-rah. It's Jesus is coming now we should live in a particular way. So the context fills out what God wants to accomplish in our lives. Paul is teaching us in this passage that we should, because we know Jesus is coming, we should live righteously. And that we should live with a seriousness about godliness. That we should live with a seriousness to live unto holiness. That we would want to grow in holiness and in godliness. The fact that Jesus is coming should cause us to want to become more and more godly in the way that we live. Now, Paul not only says this, but we also read it from the pen of John. I'm going to turn to 1 John 3. I would encourage you to do it. It's only a few pages forward, right in front of the book of Revelation, a few pages in front of Revelation. You'll come to 1 John 3. Listen to what John says, 1 John 3, verse number 1. In fact, if you have a pen, get it ready. I'm going to ask you to uh, circle a word in this passage. 1 John 3, verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Well, I would just uh, agree with that, wouldn't you? John said, wow, how incredible is this that God would call us his children, that he would call us to himself to be his sons and daughters. We who are the rebels, we who have defied him and denied him, we who embraced a lifestyle of sin, he, we who by our very nature are broken and sinful and rebellious people. And this perfect holy God would call us to himself and say, you be my son, you be my daughter. John says, wow, what manner of love is that? Do you agree? God has demonstrated great love, amen? So he says, what manner of love? The Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. He goes on to say, Beloved, verse 2, now we are the I'm sorry, I actually didn't finish verse 1. Go back up to verse 1. That we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, because we have been called to be the sons and daughters of God, therefore the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Now, what he's saying is there's so much to unpack in this, and I don't have time to, to do it all, but, but let me just stop here for a second. What, what John is saying is if you have been called out of the world to be a son of God, you're no longer the child of this world, you're no longer the child of wrath, as Paul says in one place, but you are a child of God. He says if that's you, the world shouldn't understand you. They, they, they won't be able to understand the way that you think. So let me just say it this way. If you're a Christian and all of your unchristian friends and relatives and coworkers look at your life, your values, your priorities, your worldview, the way you think, the way you conduct your life, if every lost person you know looks at you and goes, that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, I understand why you live that way. Yeah, I know why you think that way. Of course you would believe what you believe. If that's the way they think about you, there's a problem. Because he says in verse number three, if you've been called out of the world, your life should be so different. Your value system should be so transformed. Your priorities ought to be so heavenly that the world would look at you and say, man, you're a freak. What's your problem? They wouldn't understand you. 
He says in this passage, beloved, verse number two, now we are the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know this much, that when he shall appear, when Jesus shall come, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That is, that we will be made holy like he is holy. Verse number three says, and every person that has this hope, what hope? The blessed hope that Jesus is coming and he's going to make us holy when he arrives. Every person that has this hope in himself purifies himself even as Jesus is pure. Wow. John says, if you know Jesus and it is your blessed hope that one day he is coming to get you, then the the leaning of your life, the purpose of your life should be I want to be becoming more and more pure because the one who's coming to get me is pure. Could you take your pen and circle the word pure in verse number three? In fact, it's there twice, purifies and pure. Circle it there, if you will. Now, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter number four. I'm gonna ask you to circle a couple of other words even before we read the text So go to 1 Thessalonians 4, and in verse number 3, I want you to circle the word sanctification. Do you see it there? This is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's a good word. And then you'll see the word sanctification again in verse number 4. Circle it again there, verse number 4. And then go down to verse number 7. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 7. And in that verse, circle the word holiness. Holiness. For God hath not called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. And then one more over in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse number 23. Circle the word sanctify. The very God of peace sanctify you. May the very God of peace sanctify you completely or wholly. So in, in 1 John chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you should have uh, six circles. And so you've circled uh, the word purify or pure. You've circled the word sanctify or sanctification. And you've circled the word holiness. And here's what I want you to know, that all of those words Um, come from, they all derive from the same root word, therefore the same idea in scripture. And the Greek word is hagios. And the word means that person or that thing that is set apart for God. Another way to say it would be hagios means the sacred one, the sacred person or the sacred Thing. Another way to say it would be that that person is uh, devoted to God or that person is in fact just simply to say that person is holy. All of these words uh, say to us that God wants us to grow in holiness. In fact, that's the big idea that I want you to leave here with today and I don't want you to ever forget it. Jot it down somewhere so it'll, you'll write it. It'll be in your memory. It's to say that as we wait... For Jesus to come. We believe he's coming. But as we wait for Jesus to come, we must seek to grow in holiness. As we wait for Jesus to come, we must seek to grow in holiness. 
Now, from our text today in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm going to talk to you about how this growing in holiness happens. But before we do that, let me just draw your attention to the why. Why should we seek to grow in holiness? Well, notice the first word in our, in our text. It's chapter 4, verse 1. It's the word furthermore. Do you see that? Or if you have a more modern translation, the Bible probably says finally. Furthermore, or finally. But what it tells you is that the thought that's being conveyed in chapter 3 is being carried on into chapter number 4. There's no, there's no breaking in his thought pattern. He's not changing topics when, when you get to chapter 4. Of course, you know Paul didn't write the letter in chapter and verse. He just wrote the letter. And so the chapter and verse division kind of came right into the middle of his thought. So, so know that what he's been talking about in chapter 13 is what he continues to teach us about in chapter 4. Well, look at chapter 13, verse number 3. He says, to the end, or for the purpose, or for, under the goal, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. There it is again, hagios. You should circle it again. That he, should, that he would establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. What chapter 3 verse 13 affirms and what chapter 4 begins to explain to us how it can happen is that the purpose of Jesus Christ is to make people holy. Now I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm getting ready to say to you. If y'all are listening, shout amen. Listen to this. Jesus did not come just to take you to heaven. He didn't. At the end of the day, it's not simply about streets of gold and gates of pearl and, and, and eternity with Jesus in heaven. Jesus came to make people holy. And the holiness that he came to bring us will ultimately be completed when we see him, 1 John 3, 3. When we see him, we will be like him. It will be completed in that moment. And for all eternity, we sinners who have been made holy will be holy in the presence of a perfectly holy God. And that will be to his glory throughout all eternity. That is the purpose. He came to make people holy. Now listen to me. If you're here today and you say, I don't know Jesus, and I look at my life, and it's broken. I mean, there's some, there's some sin in my life. I've done some wrong things. I could never, I would never be so bold as to call myself holy. In fact, the truth is, I'm unholy. If that's what you would say about your life, welcome to church this morning. Here's the best news you've ever heard. Jesus came to make you holy. He can do it. And if you're here today and you already know Jesus, and yet you're living life in a way that is decidedly unholy, that in your decision-making and in your priorities and in your values and how you spend your time and what you engage in, in your internet choices and in your entertainment choices, if your life is marked by unholiness, I need you to hear me this morning. Jesus did not leave heaven, walk away from the courts of heaven, robe himself in flesh, live in this fallen world, be humiliated, accosted, beaten, 
crucified and mocked as he was nailed to a cross by the very ones he created. He did not do that so that you and I could drag our sorry selves into heaven by the skin of our teeth dripping with the stench of the world. He came to save you and transform your life into a life of holiness and sanctification. He came to make unholy people holy. And he came to sanctify sinners. That is his purpose. And so you and I must understand that as we look toward his return, we then need to lean into that purpose of holiness, of sanctification. Now we're going to see this in chapter number four, how it is that it's, it's worked out in our lives. So you follow along as I read chapter number four, beginning in verse one. We'll read through verse eight. So Paul writes, furthermore, finally then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus that as you have received of us how you ought to walk or to live so that you will please God, so you, uh, even so you should abound more and more. Now we'll talk about this in a minute, but I just want you to underline it while we're in verse number one. Notice there is an ought to there, how you ought to live so that your living pleases the Lord more and more. It means in a greater way, and then in a greater way more than that, and in a way that's even greater than that, that it is increasing in holiness. All right, verse two. For you know what commandments we gave to you by the Lord Jesus. Wait a minute, does that mean as a Christian I don't get to live any way I want to live? There are actually commandments I need to follow and obey? That's what Paul says. If you're going to grow in holiness, there are. For you know what commandments we have given you by the Lord Jesus. For this, call, or for this is the will of God, verse 3, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel or his body in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of concupiscence, that's an old King James word, it means evil desire, lustful desire. Not in the, in the lust of, of desire, uh, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that's the way they live, that no man would go beyond and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and testified. For God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. God has not called us to live in an ungodly way, but in a godly way. Verse eight, he therefore that despises this teaching does not despise man, but despises God who also has given to us the Holy Spirit. Now, I mentioned to you back in verse number um, one how that he says that we should be growing in this thing of sanctification, pleasing God more and more. And so I want you to begin understanding this how uh, by jotting down this principle. What, what Paul's showing us in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that a sanctified life a sanctified life is one that is progressing in pleasing God. In other words, sanctification is progressive. So a life that is being sanctified is a life that is becoming more and more pleasing to God with the passing of time and with the growth of that believer. Now, having said that, it's really important that I make a, a very crystal clear point here so that none of you misunderstand 
what I'm saying. So, so tune in and listen very, very carefully. Um, it's simply to say that, that sanctification happens in the first place at the moment of our conversion. And it happens by the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of regeneration as we trust in Christ's death and resurrection. In the moment of conversion, we are declared to be holy. We are declared to be righteous in the sight of God. That's, that's a work of grace. It has nothing to do with anything that we do. It is totally what Jesus uh, has accomplished for us through the cross, okay? Over and over, the Bible says this, that we are made righteous by the blood of Jesus. I'm gonna read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter number one. You don't have to turn just for the sake of time, but 1 Corinthians chapter number one uh, in verse number 30 says, but of him, or by God, you are in Christ Jesus, who by God is made unto us, that is, God has made unto us Jesus, our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. So we're sanctified by Jesus and what he did at the cross. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6, beginning in verse number 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, uh, effeminate, uh, abusers of themselves with mankind. This is dealing with homosexuality, not just heterosexual sin, but homosexual sin. Th uh, stealing, verse 10, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of these are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Verse number 11, and such were some of you, but you're not anymore. Because you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you get it? Justification happens at the moment of conversion. Nothing we do but trusting in Christ. The second part of sanctification is that we should know that the Holy Spirit then carries out sanctification in our lives. It's the Holy Spirit which enables the process of sanctification to occur. In fact, listen to what Philippians chapter one, verse six says. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who hath begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit washes us, regenerates us at conversion, declares us sanctified and holy. And then he begins that work that he began, he carries it out. And he will carry it out until the day that we see Jesus. In fact, look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verse number 23. It affirms this. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, And the very God of peace will sanctify you wholly or completely, and I pray, God, that your whole spirit and soul and body may be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus. Verse 24, Faithful is he that called you, and he also will do it. All right, so track with me. Sanctification or holiness is what Jesus came to do in us. When we trust in his work, we're declared sanctified, we're declared holy, the Holy Spirit then begins to work that holiness out in our lives. But there's a third part of sanctification process. And that third part is my part. It's your part. That is that we have a part to play in the process of our lives becoming sanctified. And I want you to jot it down in your notes this way because we all must take personal responsibility personal responsibility in this thing of progressive 
sanctification. Again, look at chapter 4 and verse number 1. Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk to please God. Now, if you didn't have a part in your sanctification, that verse would say, now my brothers, I've informed you that Jesus did it all for you. You have no role to play. Just chill out, relax. One day he's gonna come and get you and take you to heaven. That's not what that verse says. It says there are some things we ought to do. There are some commands we ought to follow. And that when we do those things and we follow those commands, then sanctification, uh, the process of sanctification is advanced in our lives how you ought to walk to please God. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait a minute, I'm confused. I thought you said God was pleased with me um, simply because I'm in Christ. It's nothing to do with me. It's, it's, I've trusted in Jesus. Therefore, God is pleased with me, right? That's right. But if you're a parent, you'll understand this. Parents, give me a testimony. Is it possible for you to be pleased with your child, to love your child and be pleased that they are yours and at the same time be displeased with their behavior. Can I get a witness? Absolutely. Every parent gets this. I love my child, but I want to half kill my child sometimes. I'm pleased that this is mine. I would never forsake this child. This child is mine forever. I'll always provide. I love my child, but I am going to wear out the seat of correction <laughs> because his or her behavior doesn't please me. And so we give commands and we instruct in how to behave. And as they behave, we are pleased with the way the one with whom we are pleased is living. Does that make sense? Say amen. That's all he's saying. Yeah, God's pleased with you in Jesus. He is. And the Holy Spirit is gonna sanctify you. He's gonna get it done. But you and I have a part to play in that. And we wanna live in such a way that God will be pleased with us. Paul Tripp, who many of you have read a lot of his writings, most notably on family and parenting, Paul Tripp says that this thing of sanctification in our lives is like someone joining a swim team. You go down to the gym, you join a swim club, and somebody says to you, hey, you're a swimmer. Welcome to the swim club. And they give you the matching bathing suit and you get the matching goggles and you, and you get the matching duffel bag and you stand for the group picture under the banner. But there's only one problem. You just joined. You don't know how to swim. You're part of the club, but you can't swim. And so in order for you to go beyond simply belonging to the swim club and living as a swimmer, you've got to learn some things. In the same way, when we come to faith in Jesus, we join the family of God. In fact, we say that sometimes. When people come to faith, we'll say, welcome to the family of God. They are now a child of God. Here's the only problem. They don't know how to live as a child of God. And so they, we have to learn how to live in a way that pleases our Father. And so we need to understand that while God is pleased with me in Christ and the Holy Spirit is gonna do the work, I got a part to play. So I wanna end my time with you today by suggesting to you four steps to pursue sanctification, four very practical things that he tells us in this passage that we should do to pursue sanctification while we wait for Jesus to come, all right? 
first one, jot it down, it's in verse four. It is to choose sexual purity. Now, isn't it interesting that's where he begins? Choose sexual purity. Obviously, promiscuity, immorality, was a problem in Thessalonica in the first century. Well, hello, it's always been a problem. And it's certainly it's a problem in the 21st century in America and in Weaverville and in our lives. And so in the same way that he talks about choosing sexual purity for them, we must do the same. Look at chapter 4, verse number 3. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. And then the first thing out of his mouth is, so I want you to abstain from fornication or to abstain from sexual sin. Verse 3, he says abstain from it. Verse number uh, 4, he says possess, control your body and the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 6, he says defraud not your brother. Verse number uh, 3 and 4, he says don't go beyond, set up some barriers. Don't go beyond those. Verse number 6, establish these fences. Now, loved ones, we just need to know from this passage that Paul says that one of the great threats to personal sanctification in the life of a believer is sexual immorality. It is. It's one of the, and and in fact, if you read through the scriptures, what is the one trap that has entrapped most people throughout the Bible and has taken great men like King David and others and dragged them down? It's sexual sin, sexual immorality. And so we must, if we're gonna be Growing in sanctification as men and women in the 21st century, we must choose sexual purity. Now, that's going to mean that you're going to need to make some decisions about relationships. If you're in a dating relationship, you've got some decisions to make. If you're a young person, teenager, adolescent, it doesn't even matter. If you're an adult and you're living in a, you're involved in a dating relationship, Paul says, if you want to move along this path of sanctification, you've got to make some decisions about your sexual purity. You have to. You need to put some fences up in your life. There need to be some barriers that you're just not going to, you're just not going to cross. They're, they're fences. You're going to honor your, your sisters. Men, you're going to honor your, your girlfriend as your sister in Christ. And, and you're going to date that woman, that girl that you're dating as a sister in Christ not just as your, your girlfriend or your fiance. You're not going to betray her in that walk with God, same way that a wife or a, or a girlfriend would treat her husband or see her, her, uh, her boyfriend. And so you've got to make some decisions about that. It means that you need to put up some barriers. Maybe you would say, that means I'm not going to spend inordinate time talking to somebody of the opposite sex. I'm a married man. I'm not going to be having secret conversations with a woman that my wife doesn't know about. Are you kidding me? How crazy is that? I I don't have a second phone that she doesn't know about. I don't have a password protected place on my phone she can't get to. No, there's transparency because I want to live with purity. It it means I've got to, maybe I've got to put some, some barriers on the internet. I got to get somebody else's eyes on my internet search history and, 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 and surfing history because it, there's so much available on the internet, Wh- whatever those are. But here's the thing you have to understand, that, that sanctification and sexual purity are two sides of the same coin and you cannot have one without the other. And so if you say, I want to be sanctified, 
but I'm struggling in this area with sexual purity, then you need to get some help. The Holy Spirit is within you if you know Jesus. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you. He's given you a lot of tools and the common sense to put up some barriers. So begin to embrace sexual purity. Somebody said to me uh, not too long ago, they said, you know what, we just love the Lord and we're, we're doing pretty good, but the problem is every time we, we get to my apartment by ourselves, we just struggle to be pure. I'm like, hello. Don't go to your apartment by yourselves. It's not that difficult to figure out. Put up a, a fence, all right? Choose sexual purity, it's important. Now, by the way, here's what I recognize that you can't go back and unlive yesterdays, right? And so some of you may be thinking, well, I'm already sexually impure. Well, let me encourage you. The grace of God is sufficient to cover all of our yesterdays. Somebody say, praise God. Live in, that, live in that grace. Live in that forgiveness. But make a decision today for the rest of my life by God's grace. I'm going to choose sexual purity. All right, that's number one. Number two, you'll need to go to chapter five for the, for the next three. In chapter five, we learn that in order to pursue sanctification, we should choose to serve others. Now, this might seem counterintuitive and not really a part of, of holiness, but it is. In the same way that sexual purity has to do with our personal holiness in intimate relationship, in chapter 5 we read that holiness or sanctification is expressed in our relationships with people of all stripes. All kinds of people. Look at chapter number 5 and verse number 13. At the end of the verse he says, Be at peace among yourselves. If you're not a person of peace, then you're not growing in sanctification. If you're a grudge holder, an unforgiver, then that's working against the process of progressive sanctification in your life. Be at peace. Number two, verse number 14, comfort those who are discouraged. If you want to grow in holiness, then care about people who are struggling. Help the weak, he says. Verse number 14, be patient. Verse number 15, don't take revenge. Verse number 15, do good what is, and right toward others. If you want to grow in sanctification, then the way that you relate to others matters. Number three, if you want to grow in sanctification, we need to embrace spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. Now, the first two steps are about, are about how we express holiness or progress in holiness with regard to other people, intimate relationships and all people. This third one has to do with how we grow in holiness as, as we relate to God. So we need spiritual disciplines. Verse number 16, rejoice all your days. Rejoice all your days. He says in verse number 16 that, that the practice of our life ought to be rejoicing. If I want to grow in sanctification, I need to be a praise giver, a, a, a rejoicer, not a complainer. Right? No whining, no complaining, no, no poor mouthing. That doesn't mean that life isn't hard sometimes and we, we express our grief and our difficulties. That's okay. But he says, look, the practice of your life needs to be you, you give God praise. You rejoice. He's been good to you. Even when life is not good in the moment, God is good all the time. I've told you before, we used to say to our kids when we would ask them to do something, make the bed or whatever, and they would go, oh, I don't want to make the bed. We would say, no complaining, no whining, no making excuses. Just rejoice as you make the bed. <laughs> and so we need to learn that lesson even as adults, to rejoice in all things. Uh, verse number 17, be a person of prayer. Pray without ceasing. Verse number 18, be thankful. Have a heart of gratitude. Verse 19, don't quench the spirit. Don't work against the Holy Spirit in your life. Verse number 20, don't reject the word of God. Don't reject the word of God. 
When the word of God is spoken to you, receive it. In fact, in chapter number four, where he's talking about this issue of sexual purity, in chapter four, verse eight, he says, by the way, if you despise this teaching of you ought to be living with sexual purity, you're not despising me, you're despising God. Don't do that. Don't reject the word of God. And then finally, the last step to pursuing sanctification is to honor the Lord with your decision-making. And really, I love how he does this at the end of the letter, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He says, now look, let me just kind of put this covering over it. Because, you know, sometimes there are issues where the Bible is kind of silent, right? And we don't really know for sure. Is this okay? Is that okay? Should I do this? Should I not do that? Should I engage in this or behave in that way? And it's not like an issue of sexual purity, you know, where there's no question, but it's more of maybe of a gray area. So what do you do? Well, you honor the Lord. Uh, look at what he says in verse number 21. He says, um, prove or test all things. So everything in your life, let it run through the test. Does this honor the Lord? And only hold fast to that which is good. So if you have a question, you just simply say, would, would my participation, would this behavior, would this attitude, this value, whatever, would that bring honor to Jesus? I'm going to test it. And if it doesn't, I'm going to let it go because I want to grow in sanctification. And he says in verse number 22, in fact, don't just abstain from evil, but abstain from the very appearance of evil. Now, loved ones, as we do this, as we recognize that Jesus is coming and he's gonna, he's gonna complete this work of holiness in my life. And yet, I know that he made me, he declared me holy at salvation and the Holy Spirit's been working it out in my life over all these years, but I just wanna keep leaning into it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna choose sexual purity and I'm gonna choose to bless others and I'm gonna choose to embrace some spiritual disciplines and I'm gonna choose to honor the Lord in my decision-making. And as I participate in those ways, as I follow those commands, then the promised work, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, the promised work of he will accomplish it. He will get it done. He is faithful, and he will preserve you holy, sanctified until his coming. He will accomplish it. But I have, and you have, a role to play in it. Let me ask you a question. Are you more holy today? Is your life leaning toward holiness more today than it was six months or a year ago? If not, why don't you say, Lord, I just want to begin fresh today. I want to be holy. I want you to sanctify my life. And I'm going to take some steps. And maybe there's one or two things that we've talked about this morning that the Holy Spirit just went zing and just landed it in your heart. Just give him those things. His grace is sufficient. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So receive his grace. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, why don't you put your faith in Christ today? Because he will take your life no matter what it is and he will make it holy for him. And he will take you to heaven where for all eternity, you, an unholy person, will be holy for eternity and that will give God glory as the ages roll on. So let him do it.